Uh, we are in part 13 of our Being Jesus series, and I entitled today's message, Missing the Messiah. And let me begin with a little bit of a recap. Two weeks ago, I was with you and I was teaching about how Jesus will bomb all our paradigms and keep pushing us further and reworking how we think about him, keeping things fresh and always saying, well, you assume this about me. Well, that that's not exactly all of me. And then he keeps changing things and changing things. And and Jesus isn't quite what we assume. And then last week we had Pastor Parnell Lovelace. You guys like that guy? Man. I've been admitting publicly he and I have a bit of a bromance thing going on. I I like that guy a lot, so he's fantastic. He shared with you that that not only is Jesus different, but his followers don't do normal things. That God calls us to do extraordinary things. And even in his own life, he has shared and demonstrated about how to walk out in faith and, and decrease that the Lord might increase, right? So we've been talking about all these oddities. Well, today we're going to take it the furthest step. We're going to talk about when Jesus pushes you so far, you give up on him. Uh, How could that be? As a matter of fact, we're going to read a story where it's going to begin with everybody excited about Jesus, and it's going to end with them wanting to kill him and throw him off of a cliff. What could Jesus do that would be so agitating that would cause us to say, I don't want to follow you anymore. I'm tired of how it is. I'm angry at you and I don't want you in my life. What could that possibly be? To give you an update about what's going on in my life and how this all ties in, I'll share with you this. Two weeks ago, when I was here last, you gathered around me. You gathered around me because I shared with you that I was suffering once again from the panic attack stuff that, that I've had since I was six years old, and it manifests periodically. And, and I was telling you that I was going through a hard time, and I, and I said, I need your prayers. I need your backup. So you gathered around me, and uh, last time we were together was a thousand of you gathered around and laid hands on me that was so intense about the idea that i'm so loved here that it's not just me loving you one direction it's not me pouring out my life going man i think this is the greatest congregation in the world and and i'm all excited and i'm praying for you and loving on you and everything it's not it's not just that it all pours backwards i can't even i can't even begin to write back all the notes that you gave me and the and the encouragements you mailed in cards and the emails that you sent and the texts that helped me out but you were there and you laid hands on me and you prayed that i might be free and in my paradigm, what I was thinking is that when you get a thousand people to lay hands on you, there's some serious power moving, right? And I was like, dang, that's going to be awesome. I got worse. It set off a chain of two weeks of panic attack constant. The worst that I've ever had in my entire life. I was at home. I missed. I was supposed to go out of town in two different meetings. I missed them all. I was not scheduled to be here last weekend, so that was not missed because of that. Parnell was always scheduled to be here. My weeks had me on the floor in my home, 
crying out to God for relief and hearing nothing. It had me at night trying to go to sleep and the only way I got to sleep was that my wife would rub my chest and read scripture over me. It was the only way that I would be peaceful. I couldn't hear her words. I could only know that if I caught a word, I knew it was truth and I knew that I was all right. It was one thing that kept me going through that time. A time when you feel like you're going insane, a time when you feel like you're going to die, a time when it was the darkest night of my soul. And that was that I knew that my God hears the prayers of the saints. And I knew that I was being shielded and that I was being guarded and that your prayers were with me. I knew that as I got in texts coming in and encouragements coming in and I would read those and they would renew my spirit, it would remind me this is not how it will always be. And indeed, God will come in his time and he will deliver me. And it was all those things of going through such a difficult time, but saying, I'm not alone here. My community is fighting for me and I will rise again. And I was just hoping beyond hope and all of that and hanging on to the faith that, that you were indeed praying for me. And I know you were, and I could feel that the prayers were coming in and it would change my day. That's why I said, I'm not just talking about, oh, I love you guys, blah, blah, blah. I'm talking about you sustained me with the power of God during one of the most difficult times of my life. The reason why I am here, the reason why I have had good days, the reason why now I have had light break on me and I am now getting stronger and stronger, the reason why I'm here to preach to you is because you interceded for me, God heard your prayers, and God God is mighty. Amen. But when you were in a dark place like that, you got a choice, right? I cried out. I did everything that I knew. I said all the right words. Yeah. Nothing. Cold, quiet. You got a choice to make when you enter into those seasons. You going to give up on God? You going to allow your circumstance to dictate your theology? What is it that you've been facing? What is it that's against your soul and your spirit that you want to cave and give up? What is it that you're going to allow the enemy to lie to you and say, if he was a good God, you'd never be here in this position? Don't miss Jesus because you're angry, because you're lonely, because you're afraid, because you're hurting. Don't give up on Jesus because your circumstances are not reality. Our God is good. Our God is good when we don't feel it. Our God is good when things are dark. Our God has not abandoned us. He has not walked away from us. I get you don't feel like your prayers are going very far. I get things are not going the way you want. I get that he's pushing you beyond what you can handle. And everybody tries to play that game with me. The Bible says that Paul wrote down and it was beyond what we could handle. And we despaired even to death. So don't tell me it's not more than we can handle. He'll take you where he can handle and shove you right off the edge. That does not mean that he is not going to catch you. That does not mean that he is not going to intercede for you later. That does not mean that it's not on his timing. 
Our God is good all the time, whether I'm hurting or not, whether I'm here or not, God is good. Whether I can feel Him or I can't feel Him, He is here. He is with me. He told me He would never leave me nor forsake me. He told me that He loves me and He is for me. And I had to have the truth of God replace the lies of the enemy in my mind. When you lose sight of Jesus... Because it's not going like you want it to go. You're going to miss on his blessings too. He's still moving. He's still with you. He's still orchestrating. Don't bail out and walk away. You're going to miss all the glory that comes in afterwards. After Jesus came out of the desert of temptation, he was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Good things come after the darkest nights. Do not cave and give up. Do not walk away from Jesus because it didn't go like you had hoped. Do not allow the enemy to say, if God loved you, he would have stopped that, whatever that was. Do not allow the enemy to play on your mind. Because here's the truth. God is continually renewing us. He's continually changing things. And he's moving in our lives in fresh new ways. He's giving you new insight as to what he's like. He's changing things up. And I'll tell you this, Jesus was very clear when he starts pouring in new things, it's not going to fit in your old wineskin. Here's the way that it works. Wineskins would expand out. New wineskins would expand out with new wine as they ferment. And then they would dry and harden kind of like our hearts. We get used to what we used to know. And we're now have it all locked down where we understand how everything should be with Jesus. And then he wants to pour new wine in there. You pour new wine in there, it'll break. Because old wineskins can't handle new wine. Jesus will continually mess with your world and he will show you new things and keep breaking your paradigms. He does it over and over and over. He wants to continually be fresh and new and vibrant. And if you lock it down and assume you got it all down, you are going to break And walk away and you will miss the blessing of God. Don't miss Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's dive into God's word. Why don't we take a a look at the screen here. You'll notice that it's color coded. Luke is in the white text here. That's the base of what we're going to be going off of. The story we're going to be talking about is Jesus going to his own hometown. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have this story. Uh, some scholars believe that he went home twice. I would disagree with that. I would say it is once. And so I put it all together as one story. Um, you'll notice that Matthew in orange is added in there. Mark in green has added in there. And I only add in wherever they added something to Luke's dialogue. So let's see what happens. Luke puts this immediately At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, right after the temptation of Christ and his baptism, then he has this story. That's why we're addressing it now. It says this. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee up in the north. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, meaning Jesus was growing with popularity. And he taught in their synagogues. That's plural. That means he was on a bit of a preaching circuit. He was moving around and talking in multiple synagogues. And he was being glorified by all. Things were going very well. And he came to Nazareth, his hometown, where he had been brought up. 
and his disciples followed him. The reason why it's so important to add in Mark's addition that his disciples followed him was that he was not coming back merely to go, hey guys, how you doing? I've been doing really good. You know what? Left as a carpenter, came back. I'm doing great as a rabbi, right? It was not just a homecoming. He came with his disciples as a teacher. He has a new identity walking back in to his hometown. Everybody knew his background. Everybody knew where he grew up and they all knew how his dad was. They knew how he was, right? But now he's coming back in with a different identity and he was about to let all guns go blazing, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, and he was going to minister to his hometown. Let me ask you a quick question. Is it easy to minister to your own family or hard? Hard. Why is that? It seems that... In some ways, there are some lives and stories and testimonies that are just perfect for going back home. That there's no way anyone's going to deny the power of God because of how different you are. Let's think about a couple of the stories. Jesus heals the demoniac at the the Gerasenes region. This is a guy that has over a thousand demons in him, maybe 2000 demons in him, refers to himself in the plural, walks around naked, cuts himself, lives in the tombs, cries out all the time. He gets radically healed, exercised from the demons. He's sitting in his right mind. God redeems him and he wants to follow Jesus and go somewhere else. And Jesus said, I want you to go home. Why? Because there's lives like that. When all of a sudden you go from crazy naked guy to, hello, my people. (laughs) And they're like, what? What's wrong with you? You have an English accent. (laughs) Right? There's, what are you going to do? You can't deny that. You can't go, you know, I think this whole wearing clothes is just a phase. I think that I'm surely he's going to go right back to being naked and running in the field. Right? Uh, There's certain things that are undeniable. And then there's some that, that run back home because they're so overwhelmed by Jesus. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about the woman at the well. And the woman at the well had been alone because of her shame in her community. But after an encounter with Jesus, she ran back in and talked to the elders of the whole city. She didn't care. There was no fear. There was no shame. There was no concern. She just runs back in and goes, you guys, I think I found the Messiah. You got to come with me. So there's some lives that seem to be so motivated to talk. I've got to encourage you on this. You've got to talk to your family. You've got to talk to your family. Uh, is it hard? Of course it's hard. Do you shove it down their throat? No way. You walk with all tenderness, humility, and grace. Why? Because they're going to have a hard time getting over your familiarity. They're remembering things, they're biased, they're trapped in the past, they're going to have a hard time seeing anything. The minute you screw up, the minute you lose your temper, they're going to go, see, you're not different. They're waiting for an opportunity to be able to recalculate and say, no, 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 you're just going through something. I get it's hard, but our job, it starts out the Great Commission we share in our own hometown in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, right? And it goes on out from there. But we start out by sharing with those in our cubicle. We start out by sharing with those at school. We start by sharing with those that are our friends. We start by sharing with those of our family. We do so by demonstrating demonstrating a life that is transformed and a love that is extraordinary. But is it easy? It is not. Jesus came home. 
And as was his custom, remember it is his habit, Jew first, then Gentile, he's a Jew. He's going to go into his church. And as was his custom, he went to their synagogue on the Sabbath day. That's the seventh day, the normal day to gather together and consult God's word and worship. And he stood up to read. That is a sign of respect. Now, the way that this is going to go, you're going to kind of go, I don't really understand how their church works. So let me just explain it ahead of time. Ancient synagogues operated much more like what we would consider a small group. It was not like this. It was not like, and Jesus stood up next to the drum kit. It was not that way. It was not a big stage. There was none of that. It was very much about a square room with seating around the outside, and it was designed for interaction. So this is how it would kind of go. If there was a priest, now that's not common, because there was a temple in Jerusalem that had all the priests and Levites. A synagogue was the local house of worship. It was the center of their community. As a matter of fact, the Jewish rule was any town, village, city that had 10 or more Jewish families was to have a synagogue. They didn't have a main pastor. They had what was called a ruler or they had a facilitator and they had elders. These were the people that would keep it clean and keep it organized. They had a very high respect for God's word. So the service would begin. And if there was a priest that happened to be in town, he would start by welcoming them and praying a blessing over them. Then they would all recite Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, the Shema. Hear, O Israel uh, Yahweh is one. They would all say that together and then they would enter into a little bit of time of worship, maybe singing some psalms or hymns. Then they would go into a time of uh, prayers, which were sometimes pre-planned prayers, but they would all pray together. Then they would go into a reading time and this is where it gets a little bit tricky. It's very different. They would select out seven members of the congregation to stand up and they would read different portions of scripture during different seasons. Sometimes it would be a planned place. Sometimes they would say, do you have anything you want to read? They would go up and they would get the word. And there was a guy whose job was to maintain the honor of the scriptures. They keep it in a locked cabinet. That's called the Torah Ark. They would then retrieve. You don't go and get the Bible. You don't have a Bible. You don't have the Old Testament. It's all on scrolls. These are all handwritten stuff. You don't mess with these. So he goes and gets it. You'd say, I'd like the scroll of Isaiah. He will go unlock the cabinet, grab it, carry it over to you, protect it the whole time. You read it when you're done. You hand it right back to him. He'll make sure it gets back. The interesting thing is, it was always read, the original was always read in Hebrew. But most people didn't know ancient Hebrew. It's very frustrating to go to a church service where you don't speak the language of the person that is up front. Some people have to wrestle with that all the time. So sure enough, he would say it or she would read it. Actually, women didn't do it at the time unless they were by themselves. The man would read the scripture in Hebrew and instantly it was translated into Aramaic. They would read the law first, then the prophets. The law is the first five books of the Old Testament. The prophets are pretty much everything else. When they would talk about the prophets, they could do three verses at a time and then translator guy would go off. 
if it was the law that was so important they could only do one verse at a time he would read one translator guy would give one he would read one translator guy would give one until they were done then they would invite up anyone that was respected in the room whether that was a visitor or somebody that was normal they would come up and if they were not the last person to read they would then go up front and sit down and share what they thought about the scriptures that had just been read so in, when we think about it, we go, well, wait a second, you stand up to teach and then you sit down when you're done. It's the opposite. They stand up to read and then they sit down to teach. When that is all done, they open the floor to conversation and they all interact with it. Okay. And that's why the seating is all the way around the edge of the room. So everyone can see each other and they would all say, well, I don't know if I agree with that. And what about this? And how about that? And they would all kind of go through discussions about it. All right. And then at the end, somebody would dismiss. If it's a priest, it would be a, a benediction. That was their church service. That is the context Jesus is in. So let's read it again. As was his custom, he went to their synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And this is Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, but he's going to alter it. And he's going to add a line from Isaiah 58, 6. He's messing with the text. He said, quote, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And they went, oh, I know this one. This is one of our favorites. This is a Messiah passage. Yeah, I like this one. I like this one. This is where it talks about the Messiah coming, freeing the Jews and getting rid of all the Gentiles. And God brings in vengeance on them and we get all their stuff. I love this one. So he begins, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he is talking about the anointed one, the one that everyone was waiting, waiting for this Messiah, where the Holy Spirit would come upon him for supernatural power, that he would do the extraordinary. He said, because he has anointed me, he has touched me special to proclaim good news to the poor. And everyone's like, yeah, amen, amen, right? I'm poor too. Because in their minds, it was like poor in spirit. It didn't matter if they were super wealthy or not. They were like, yeah, that means Jews. Right on. All right, that's good. He's going to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. They were like, yeah, down with Rome. Yeah, Rome's held us captive. You know, we've always been captive. Well, when it talks about this and it speaks in Isaiah about setting captives free, there's a background to it. All the Jews immediately think year of Jubilee. Do you think you're of Jubilee? Probably not. Okay, let me explain why. Every seventh day in the week is a day of rest. That's called the Sabbath, right? Well, every seven years in Israel was a Sabbath year, which meant you do not work your soil. You let your ground rest. Now, of course, God's a little brilliant on this about if you eat up all the nutrients in your soil, you're going to ultimately ruin it and nothing's going to grow there. So he allowed it to rest and said, I need you to trust me on that seventh year. Well, after you do seven, seven year periods, seven times seven is 49. You're set up for the 50th year. The 50th year is the year of Jubilee. Three things happen on that year. All property is returned to the original owner. All debts are freed. All captives are freed. 
Now, this is a big, huge deal. It is a reset button for the entire nation. Meaning that if you have sold your land, nobody actually sells land in Israel. Land has been allotted to families by God. You don't get to sell your land. What happens is you sell it or lease it or rent it until the year of Jubilee, knowing you're going to get it back. Also, if you have anybody that's a a servant of yours because they owe you money, you're only buying them until the year of Jubilee where they will be set free. If you have any debts outstanding, you know that those are to be cleared on the year of Jubilee. So when we talk about the year of Jubilee, everyone's like, yeah, the year of freedom. That's the context. He sent me to proclaim liberty to all those that were held down and sent me for recovering the sight of the blind. You mean literally or spiritually? Yes. To set at liberty those who are oppressed, spiritually or physically, yes. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to inaugurate, to launch, to begin the messianic age. And they were like, whoa, love that one. Can't wait for that to happen. This is going to be awesome, except for you screwed it up when you read it. Jesus, that's not where it ends. You cut it off. And indeed he did. That is not where it ends. He cut it off right before it finishes. How it finishes it is it talks about and God's vengeance will come. Why did Jesus cut it off before vengeance? Because he knows that his calling is that the Messiah would come the first time to save. And then when he comes again, he would reckon judgment. That time was not here. There was no point in referring to that right now. But that was going to agitate them because they're starting to understand He's going off script because the Aramaic version of this scripture, which the Aramaic guy may have been wanting to share, but Jesus wasn't going there, was all the commentary that's added in that says, and God will bring vengeance on the Gentiles and we will get the Gentiles stuff. None of that is being referred to. And they're like, what are you, what are you trying to say? So they're a little confused, but they're impressed with his knowledge. Let's take a look at what he says next. This will blow their mind. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down to teach. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. This is the, all right, dude, we have heard about you. You are the man, according to reputation. You cast out demons, you restore sight to the blind, you heal the lame, you heal the deaf, you do crazy miracles. We've all heard this. You're a local guy. Here we go. This is going to be awesome, right? What do you got for us? And he began to say to them, today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What? What? You're the Messiah? No way. Home guy's the Messiah. This is awesome. He's a Messiah. And he taught them. We don't know how much more that he shared. But it said, so that many who heard him were astonished. They were stunned and amazed what they were hearing. And all spoke well of him. I don't know how long that takes for everyone to talk well of you. But they were like, man, this guy's rock and roll. He's awesome and everything. And they marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth about how amazing he was talking and the wisdom that he was using. And they were just absolutely electric in the room. And let me just comment on 
on this. The power of a corporate gathering is that it really changes how God moves because he's built us to be atmospheric beings. We are very affected by our environment. So when we get together, like in a group like this, we spur one another on. As a matter of fact, you may be a little bit down, you come to church, you start hearing the worship, and they're singing songs about God being good, and God coming through, and God bringing deliverance. Your spirit starts to rise. You talk after church with so-and-so who was hurting last week. They're talking about a blessing in their life. You're like, if God did that for you, God could do that for me. Your faith is increased. And it's like the ethos, the, the, the sense in the room starts to amp and everybody's pumped and everybody's feeding off each other. And there's this incredible faith that is built in an atmosphere of a corporate gathering of believers. Do you understand that? That's one of the reasons why it's so important to be here. Because we need that. We're built for community. We're built for environmental. If we're all by ourselves at home, it's just you and your head. And that's not always encouraging. So right there, sometimes we got to be together just so we can say, wait a second. I heard Pastor Lance was talking about Daniel in the lion's den and how it looked like it was sure defeat. And then the, the angel shut the mouths of the lions and he got out free. You need to hear and be encouraged. It says faith comes by hearing the word and you're hearing it in the testimony of other people. You're hearing about the crazy miracles God is doing. You're hearing about um, how God is moving in his word and you're like, yes, and your faith is rising. That's awesome. Problem is, is everything switches in the next verse. I heard someone teach on this recently and they shared two thoughts about it that were mind-blowing for me. And I'm going to share them with you. Look at the next line. And they said, where did this man get these things? Oh, now somebody's put on their thinking cap. Wait, wait, wait. Where did he get this stuff, these abilities? Hold on, hold on, guys. Whoa, everybody's getting all excited about something. Whoa, 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 hold up. Hold up. I could get all caught up in it too. You know, let's just back up for a second. Let's analyze the facts here. Where did this guy get these things? Wait, what is this wisdom given to him? Obviously, it's beyond normal. He's not an educated guy. He never went to college. He's a Mason woodworker guy. He didn't do any of the schooling. I get it. He's brilliant. I'm not arguing that. I'm saying that's a little weird. How are such mighty works done by his hands? I don't deny miracles are occurring. I'm denying the source. I'm denying whether or not, I mean, it's either from God or it's from people or it's from the enemy. I'm not so sure anymore because I know this guy and I don't think this is how it's going to happen. Is not this the carpenter? And that word tekon in Greek means a builder of any sort, wood, brick, stone, whatever. Is not this the carpenter? Joseph, the carpenter's son. He's not a miracle guy. He's a carpenter. That stuff doesn't happen like this. Come on. I mean, we know where this guy comes from. You grew up next to him. I grew up next to him. Is not his mother called Mary? Pause right there. Notice that when it says, is not his mother called Mary, that's in orange. That's Matthew. Matthew has no recording of their reference to Joseph, the dad at all. Why is that important? Because that's a huge insult in Jewish culture. You never refer to their mom unless you're insulting them. 
you refer to their father. What they're doing right there is they go, hold on, isn't this the kid that had that cloud of suspicion when he was growing up? Oh, aren't you the illegitimate kid? Oh, I get it. That's right. Your dad's gone now. Was he ever your dad? I don't know. See, here's the deal. We know your mom. We know everything else is going on, but you've been under suspicion for a long time, buddy. Are not all his brothers names four of them, James, Joseph, Joseph, and Simon and Judas. Now Jude and James wrote books in the Bible later, but right now they don't believe and are not all his sisters here with us. That's clearly more than two. That means Mary and Joseph had a really big family. All those kids were born after Jesus. He was the oldest of all those siblings. Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at it. What happened? Check this out. Right off the bat, one skeptic in doubt pulled all the faith right out of the room. And it was gone. And it went from an electric place of, yes, this is the dude. And then everyone went, hold up. This can't be the dude. Let me give you a million reasons why this shouldn't be working. Oh, oh, well, maybe we were getting ahead of ourselves. That's a great point. Okay, uh, you're right. Um, I know this guy is familiar. He grew up. You're right. He's probably not. No, he's not that. And all of a sudden, in an instant, the faith evaporated. Can that happen? Oh, yeah. It steals it. From every other heart. The other thing that was taught to me that I thought was really insightful was this. We get so caught up on the vehicle that we ruin it. I'll give you an example. Let's say I don't know you, right? I don't know you very well, but I'm the pastor of a church that's kind of kind of big. It's kind of moving and stuff, right? So I come up to you and I go, hey, can I pray for healing for you? You'd be like, uh, weird, but yeah, let's do it. You'd be all in. Now let me do it for my neighbor that I grew up with. Is there a difference? Oh yeah. Here's the other problem. You go over in the prayer corner. You want to go behind that curtain and assume it's somebody big. It's somebody fancy. It's somebody you don't know where you can picture in your mind that they're nails with the Lord, right? And who is it? It's Bob, the dude that cheats at dominoes. You're like, dang it. Had to be Bob. I don't want Bob praying for me. That guy, he had enough faith, he wouldn't cheat at dominoes. So obviously he's not legit. And right there, your faith goes, Boo. Why? Because familiarity screws it up. You keep thinking the vehicle is it. Let me tell you something right now. No person is healing anybody. No person is answering your prayers. It is God and it's God alone. The vehicle is merely a vehicle. Who cares if it's a little child? If a little kid comes and lays their hand on you. I know that. My little ones lay hands on me to heal me. When the little one lays hands on, I'm going, man, there's more faith in that little vehicle than anybody else. I don't want some big bad preacher up there. I want a little child to go step in for me. It doesn't matter. Even if you have a messed up vehicle, even if you know that person isn't totally right with God, they're not healing you. It's God who's healing you. Amen. 
And here's the lie that Satan gets. He gets us on both sides. He's so smooth on this. God will do something extraordinary and we get hijacked on either side. Either they're too familiar or they're too weird. Too familiar, too weird. God can't win. What, you want him to be too different or you want him to be too the same? Oh, but can't lose, can't win either one. Right, got to have it right down the middle. Do it exactly like I want it or it's not legit. That's not fair. We can't do that to God. We're putting God on trial every time. That's unfair. It moves on. He said, well, obviously the attitude in the room has changed. So he said, he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. And they all knew this one. Physician, heal yourself. What does that mean? It means... Seriously, you can do that? Prove it right now. You do it. If you're so big and bad, how about you get off the cross? You guys remember this? Jesus was always being tested like this. Do we hold God on trial? God, prove yourself. Go ahead. Go ahead, buddy. I'm a skeptic. Bring it. What do you got? Go ahead. Change my heart. Change my mind right now. Are you putting God on trial? Hold on. Whoa, 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 whoa. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, all those miracles do here in your hometown as well. Come on, man, throw a little magic dust around. Let's show this thing, right? I mean, you've done so many other extraordinary things. Everybody's like, ooh, miracle worker, right? And now all of a sudden you come home, all right, go. Go, turn this water into wine. I'm thirsty, dude. Let's go. And it says he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. What a drag. Well, the other word for unbelief is lack of faith. Then it says this. And he said, truly, I say to you. Now, y'all know that's one of our phrases, right? All right. One of our phrases. It's, listen up. This is deep. Okay. We have behold and truly, I say to you, right? This is truly, I say to you. Listen up. This is deep. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Why? Familiarity ruins it. But in truth, let me tell you the effects that this can have if you guys continue on like this, he said. I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, days of Israel being in full of unbelief. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them. God chose not to intervene for his people. He skipped Israel. But he only went to the Gentile lady of Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman, not even a man, who was a widow who was lowly. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha who took over for Elijah during that period of unbelief of Israel. And none of them were cleansed. God did not come to their need. He skipped them and only went to Naaman the Syrian, a Gentile. Whoa. Well, now you just ticked everybody off. Why? What did he just say? He just said three highly insulting things. Number one, he said, you guys are getting hung up on me being too familiar and you don't think I could be the Messiah because you got it all figured out. Get over yourselves. Well, that's going to irritate someone, right? You don't just tell someone to get over themselves and think that's going to go well. But it was more the other two. The other thing that he just said was God loves Gentiles too. Oh, well, that ruined it. The Jews, uh, by self-preservation, they had been persecuted for so long. They had been so tore up. They had to kind of hang on to their identity. But they allowed that passion to turn into hatred for everyone else. 
And when he cut off that thing and started reading the scripture different and started saying that God goes to the Gentiles and he has grace for the Gentiles and he has healing for the Gentiles and he has care for the Gentiles, they were getting so agitated going, no, 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 no. we are the ones that are hurting. He's our Messiah. You need to be fixing us, not going to anybody else. How dare God bypass us? But then it was the third one that really threw him over the top. He threatened them and warned them. He said this. In the Old Testament, when Israel was in unbelief, God did not cater to them and fix their skepticism. He bypassed them. He jumped right over them. And if you reject me right here, right now, I'm gone. I am your Messiah and you got a choice. You will either believe in me or you will not believe in me. But if I walk from here, I'm never seeing you again. And you need to know that. Well, that's just now everybody's mad. Let's go kill this guy, right? When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up, drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him off a cliff. But passing through their midst, miraculously, he went away. And there was no record of him ever coming back. And he could do no mighty works there. No miracles, no signs and wonders, except he laid his, few hand, his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. We always think that's a big deal. That's not a big deal to God. And he marveled at their lack of faith. And so he went about among the other villages teaching. Don't miss Jesus. I don't know what he's doing. But don't miss him. Wherever he's at, you want to be there. Listen, I don't understand faith, how faith works. I don't get all this stuff. There's a couple things that I am learning. I do know this. God loves to unleash his power in relation to the faith present in any given situation. It's the same thing about when I talked about the son of God being lifted up on the cross, like that snake being lifted up in the desert, that the healing was released when they turned in faith and looked up at it in the same way as we look up at Jesus Christ and we say, yes, Lord, that's when our salvation and healing pours forth from heaven and we are rescued. I know God loves to operate in an environment of believing him at his word, having confidence in his character, believing that what he says is not only possible, but it is true. And you go, but there's a lot of times when God heals and there's no faith at all. The guy from the pool of Bethesda, he didn't even know who Jesus was. The blind guy that gets healed. He couldn't even see Jesus, didn't know. They asked him later, who healed you? He's like, I have no idea, dude, I was blind. Now I can see, that's awesome, but he was gone by the time I could see. And you go, what about those scenarios? That's called compassion and love and a wonderful God. Amen. Of course he does that. That's what hijacks the plan. The plan is normally operate with faith, but because God loves us so much, he will jump over that and go, you know what, you're hurting and I'm gonna heal you right here, right now, just because I want to. And he will violate his own plan out of compassion and his incredible heart. Does he always? No, actually he doesn't. But understand this. It's not that he can't. It's that he won't. Whoa, that's a tough one. It's not that he can't. It's that he won't. Why? Because miracles, just like everything else God does, is for the encouragement of relationship. 
If it's not going to encourage relationship, it doesn't have value. If he's going to heal someone and they're going to engage with him deeper, and that is what they need at the time, God will do that. If it's not going to do that, God's not going to do that. There's no point in it. It's always about relationship. It's always about deeper and deeper and connecting in. That's the whole purpose behind all these things. God wants faith so much that he's willing to allow suffering sometimes in its absence. That's brutal. But you know what? Here's the other truth. Sometimes in the presence of perfect, full, mature faith, God says no. And we better get used to dad saying no. Because here's what happens. I get prayed over by a thousand people four times. Well, you think nobody was righteous there? Come on. I mean, seriously, I get to pick from the cream of the crop in the most amazing church, obviously I'm biased, in the most amazing church ever, we got everybody fired up, right? And they're like, yeah, and they're actually focused because they're like, oh, my pastor's jacked up. And so everybody's trying to get near me and everyone's laying their hands on me and they're praying with all the faith in the whole world and I get worse. You guys, don't you get it? It's not that there was no faith in the room. It's not that there was no faith going on. There was plenty of faith going on. Dad said no. And that's hard to deal with. What is faith? Faith is confidence. How do we get more of it? The Bible tells you. And faith comes by hearing the word. Because how in the world am I supposed to trust him if I don't know anything about him? And if I don't know anything about him, I need to learn about him. And the more and more I talk to you and I learn about God, and the more I talk to my friends, the more I read books, the more I'm reading God's word, and I know what he's really like, I get more and more confident that I know what's going on. And all of a sudden, alarms get reset, and I know when he's going to fire off, and I start to know his heart. And that is how faith grows. God loves environments of faith. But sometimes there's environments of skepticism where no matter what miracle God does, you're going to drill a hole in it. And he can't win. Well, yeah, 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 sure. I'm sure that happened, but whatever. I'm sure that happened. Yeah, yep, probably true. I'm not questioning that something happened. I'm just saying, I don't know. I'm just saying that, you know, okay. And God got no, got no glory. Why in the world would he want to do another one of those? What a drag. May we not miss God. It says this. Don't miss Jesus because you don't like how he's operating. I don't care if it's your pain that's not being alleviated. I don't know if it's your disappointment in life in general. I don't know what it is that Jesus hasn't done or has done that has so destroyed your spirit. But don't give up on Jesus. Where are you going to go? Where am I going to go? What other God do we have but this one? And just because our limited view draws a picture of him being bad doesn't mean he's bad. We don't have all the information. If we had all the information, we would see him as good all the time. 
And we would stop pulling the glory away from him. We would stop doubting him. We would stop being so mad at him and angry at him and rejecting him in our lives. If you knew what he knew, you would applaud what he does. I know what it is to hurt and not get help. And we got a choice to make. Please don't turn your back on Jesus. He is the only Savior you have. And He is loving. And He has not forgotten you. You are not abandoned. You are not hated. He is for you. You are not unloved. He cherishes you. He keeps his eyes out upon you. And I know you don't feel like that. And the enemy's constantly saying, if he really loved you, this would not be occurring. I cannot listen to that. That's what I was feeling when I was laying on the ground in my home. No, that's not right. I'm too easily moved in my mind. God is true. His word is true. Period. Every time. Doesn't matter what I think. I'll close with this thought. My wife says, man, when this thing is over, because it's been rough. She's been a rock star. She's, I'm just hardcore turned into this intercessor fighting for me. She's just like little Joan of Arc, yeah, hacking stuff away. I mean, it's just, <laughs> right? In the middle of this, she says, when this thing is done, man, we got to have a praise party. We got to invite over to our house, somebody to lead a worship. We got to invite our intercessory teams, all these people fighting for us, the prayer team corner. We got to get these people in there. And I was like, I was so messed up. I was like, I don't want to plan anything. I don't want anybody in my space. That is messed up. I'm so off right now. And what I said was, yeah, babe, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> right? And then she came back to me a couple hours later and she said, Lance, we need to do it now. God is worthy to be praised whether we get our answer or not. We need to praise him in the midst of it. And I began to realize there was all these scriptures where it said, while they praised, God turned the enemy on itself. While they worshiped, God slaughtered the enemy that was against them. And I began to think, you know what? I am not going to praise contingent upon me getting my stuff. We will praise right now. So we did it Friday night. Before I knew I was going to be in the clear, before I knew I was going to be able to preach, before I knew I was going to be all right, we had a praise session so loud outside, all our neighbors heard it. And we were telling everybody that could listen that our Jesus is wonderful and mighty and great. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's close in prayer and we have a short video to kind of express some thoughts. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you even when things aren't good, even when things aren't right. It doesn't mean that you're not a good shepherd. It doesn't mean that you're not a good father. It doesn't mean that you're not a good God. You are a good God. You are a loving Father. You are wonderful despite our circumstances. And I just pray right now, Lord, that you would be glorified in our hearts, that every wonderful thing that you do is magnified and glorified and excited, and that you get all the praise you deserve, that you are 
are extolled in our minds, that you are lifted high and made famous because God, even if my life falls into difficulty again, you are glorious, you are majestic, you are wonderful, and I refuse to allow my circumstances to dictate my theology. God, you are good all the time and forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.